Well, the fact that Christ has not returned after 2,000 years makes some people doubt the reality of his second coming, while others simply ignore it altogether. Instead of living with the expectancy and seeking to faithfully endure, they become careless and fail to live in light of the judgment that is coming. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered resources at our website, Radical.net. In this message, David Platt exhorts us to heed Christ's warning in Matthew 25. Though Christ's return seems to be delayed, he will return suddenly and all hearts will be exposed. Christ's coming should shape the way we live in the present and the way we live look to the future, for nothing short of heaven and hell are at stake. Here's David Platt with part two of his message, Return of the King, from Matthew 25. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 24. Let me invite you to pull out those notes that you received in your worship guide when you came in. We're in part two of Matthew 24 and 25, last week we saw that Jesus is coming back. There's coming a day, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, when the Son of Man, Christ, will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So that could be today. That could be tomorrow, could be next week, next month, next year, 10 years from now, a thousand years from now. So the question is, what does that mean for our lives at this moment in this room? How does the reality of Christ's return affect the way you think and the way you feel right now? And that's where I want us to pick up. Starting in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and going all the way to Matthew 25, verse 46, what we're going to see is Jesus tell story after story to help us understand how we should live in the light of his coming. So I want to read the, the first few verses after what we read last week, because they frame a, what I've called there at the top of your notes, a sobering setup that we need to feel in this room this morning. I pray all of us. So some of you were not here last week. Some of you may be visiting here for the first time. So you're coming in, in a sense, you're coming in on the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples just days before he was going to die on a cross for the sins of men and women throughout history. Before he died, rose from the grave, he prepared his disciples for his departure and he promised them that he was going to return This is a bedrock truth in biblical Christianity. One day, Jesus is coming back. And I want you to hear what Jesus says about his return. Start in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. Let's see the setup. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So let's pause there. Let's feel this setup. What is Jesus saying about his second coming? Well, one, he's saying that his delay will be long. Now, he remarkably comments in verse 36 about how he doesn't know the day and hour when this will happen. And nobody knows except for the Father in heaven. This is one example of how Christ in his humanity constrained, restrained his deity. In becoming a man, he humbly accepted limitations upon his omniscience in this circumstance as a man on the earth. And so this is a reminder that no man anywhere on earth, no matter what he claims, no man knows when Jesus is going to return. So when somebody comes out with a book and DVD series this year, 12 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 2012, just save your money. Don't buy it. At the most, see, see if the guy who wrote it is willing to give you everything in his savings and investment accounts since he won't be needing it after this year. So explore that. But beyond that, don't buy it. No man knows when Jesus is going to return. But Jesus is saying all over this passage that there will be a delay. Let me give you a little preview of some of these stories that we're about to read as as Jesus finishes in what we've got in Matthew 24 here and then into chapter 25. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 5. He's going to tell different stories, which will make sense more in a minute. But he he says in verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So he describes a bridegroom that's delayed in coming. 25, verse 19. It says, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. After a long time, a master comes to his servants. In chapter 24, we've already looked at how he's described. 24 verses 9 through 14, tribulation's going to come. Persecution's going to come. Opposition's going to come to disciples of Jesus. And verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will proclaim throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. All of that implies some kind of delay. Now, it may seem particularly long to us. Like, is Jesus really coming back? I mean, he said these things 2,000 years ago and he's still not come back. Is it true? This is where I want to remind you of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. With the Lord, one day is 1,000 years. 1,000 years is one day. So it's really not been that long since he said this. His delay will be long. Second, his return will be sudden. So in the verses we just read, verses 36 through 42, Jesus talks about the days of Noah when people were eating and drinking and marrying. Everything was normal. Everything was usual. All of a sudden, a flood came and swept them away. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be. People are going to be eating lunch, enjoying each other's company going through their routine and all of a sudden to their shock Christ will return so beware beware thinking that the day to day stuff of your life in this world will last one day it's all going to be turned upside down immediately so do not put your hope in your job 
Do not put your hope in your house. Do not put your hope in your things, in your investments, in your plans. Do not put your hope in the things of this world. Jesus' return will be sudden on a normal, usual, routine day. Jesus will return as the judge of your life and this world. And when he returns, his judgment will be irreversible. Every single story that we're about to read that Jesus tells illustrates this point. You're going to hear in just a moment about servants who are not ready when their master returns and they are cast into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're going to hear about bridesmaids who are locked out of a marriage feast and the door is shut to them never, never to open for them. You're going to hear about people being cast into everlasting punishment. There is absolutely no hint here or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter that there will be a second chance for anyone on the day that Jesus comes back. His judgment will be irreversible. On that day, our hearts will be exposed. The true nature of our hearts before God will come to light. Nothing will be hidden. On that day, everything will be revealed. All the things that we like, that we presume to cover up, will be exposed. Things that we, in our pride, don't even realize are wrong, will be shown wrong. Our hearts will be exposed, which leads to the next truth. Our sentence may be surprising. In every story we're about to read, hear this. The people are surprised when the master casts them out or turns aside from them. They're shocked. It it goes back to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, the conclusion of his most famous sermon, when he said, many will say to me on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and do mighty works in your name? Many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Hear this. Many people, potentially even many people in this room, will be shocked on that day to find that though they thought they were on the narrow road that leads to heaven, they were actually on the broad road that leads to hell. It's one of the most frightening verses in all of scripture, Matthew 7. For me as a pastor to think that there are many people who think that they are eternally safe when the reality is they do not know Jesus. And the reason I say could be many in this room, I think about Story after story, I think about one brother in this faith family who came here to this church after having spent his entire life in church. He had served on just about every committee there any church had ever created, and he had served well. One of the pastors from this man's former church called us when this man started coming here to say, just want you to know this is a great church member and you will benefit wonderfully from having him as a member of your church. The only problem is that this man did not know Jesus. 
He had checked off every box. He'd prayed the prayer. He'd been baptized. He'd signed up. He'd served. He'd taught. He'd led. Yet he had never come to saving faith in Christ. When he was baptized over here, his testimony he shared. For all those years, I sat in the seats of a church thinking I knew Christ when I did not. I think of a college student in our faith family who recently shared during her baptism testimony. I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart when I was younger, yet as I grew older, I knew that I had done that and was doing all kinds of other activities in the church in order to earn the favor of God. Until one day I was finally confronted with the extreme tension that exists between my sinful self and God's holy nature. I realized that only Christ's work was sufficient for the favor of God. And I fell on my knees in fear and trembling and adoration and confessed my need for Jesus. Now I know that I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I don't think their stories are unique. I think they represent a pandemic problem across contemporary Christianity. Scores of people who have made decisions, prayed prayers, signed cards, been baptized, done the deal, but do not truly know Christ. And Jesus is saying here, your sentence, so don't let this kind of go off you to somebody, your sentence may be surprising. And he's saying that our lives will stand alone. Two men in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. It does not matter who you are around on that day. For on that day, homes and neighborhoods and communities and nations will be divided among two groups. Those who truly know Christ and those who do not know Christ. It doesn't matter what home you're in, who you are married to, what your parents believed, how you grew up, where you spent your life, where you led your family. On that day, your life will stand alone. So feel this. In light of the fact that Jesus' delay will be long, his return will be sudden, his judgment will be irreversible, our hearts will be exposed, our sentence may be surprising, and our lives will stand alone. In light of all this, we must be prepared. That's the whole point of Matthew 24, 36 through 25, 46. That's the point of this passage. We must be prepared. That's what I want to say to every person in this room this morning. Are you prepared? Jesus is going to tell us five stories. Some of them shorter, shorter, some of them longer. All of them have the same point. We must be prepared. We must be prepared because your life and my life is at stake for eternity on being prepared. I said last week, as bold as it may sound, that this text, these two chapters are going to prepare you for your future. And as weird as it may sound, this text, these chapters are going to prepare you for life 10 billion years from now. This text is eternally important this morning. I can't think of anything more important. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to walk through these five stories, these illustrations that Jesus tells, and I want to give you five questions to ask in your heart today to help you know if you are prepared. Five questions that I want to urge you to honestly, prayerfully, humbly, let's go back, honestly, 
penetratingly ask of your heart this morning. My prayer is that in the process, God might prepare your heart for that day. That for many, you might realize in the next few moments that you are not ready for that day. And that you might see that God in his grace has brought you to this place on this day that you might be prepared for that day. And for others, that you might be encouraged as we ask these questions, that you might feel in your heart a sweet, expectant sense of confidence that by the grace of God, you are prepared for that day. So let's start with the first story. It's a short one. Then we'll ask the first question. Pick back up in verse 42. Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Okay, first penetrating question that you and I must ask. Are you keeping watch for Christ? Are you keeping watch for Christ? So it's a bit of a startling illustration that Jesus describes his coming like a burglar in the night. But the rest of the New Testament uses the same imagery. Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter, 2 Peter 3, 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Revelation 3, 3. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I come like a thief. So the point is clear. If you know a thief is coming to your house, if a thief leaves you a voicemail and says, I will be there tonight, then you stay awake. You keep watch. So, so what does this look like then practically in our lives? Like, how do you keep watch for Christ on a daily basis? Think about it this way. Most of you know that my wife, Heather, is pregnant and doing well, Lord willing. In about two weeks, we'll find out the baby's gender. And, and at this point, she's technically due around the first week of December. And what that means is right around mid-November, into the waning days of that month and into the early days of December, every single day, we will be watching and waiting. I will ask her on a daily basis, babe, how are you feeling? Every moment I am at the office, I will have my phone with me, looking, waiting for her to call. I'll check it periodically to make sure I haven't missed anything. It will affect where I go, how I travel, what I do. It's not that I'll stop and put my entire life on hold, but I will live all of life with a constant expectation that today could be the day and this moment could be the moment. And I'll live that way because I can't wait. Because with each passing day, I know I'm getting closer and closer to seeing this person that I can't wait to express love to and affection for. So, do you think about the coming of Christ like that? Is his coming on your mind and on your heart 
Not in such a way that you stop everything you're doing, but in such a way that affects everything you're doing. You think about him, not because you're forced to, or because you have to remind yourself to think about him, but because you love him and you long for his coming. And so he's in your mind and he's on your heart and you can't wait to see him. Is that true in your life? Are you keeping watch for Christ? And if not, then what does that say about your heart? What might that say about your perspective on the things of this world? What might that mean about where your priorities and your passions lie? Are you keeping watch for Christ? Second question. Are you faithfully following Christ? Are you faithfully following Christ? Verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a story. Now, there's a lot of elements in these stories that we don't need to press too far. But look at the overall point. Who is the faithful servant? One servant faithfully honors his master until he comes. The other for, virtually forgets that his master's coming back. And so he dishonors his master until he's surprised by his master's return. You faithfully follow in Christ. So this is where I, I can't help but to think about Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions. We've, I've shared with him different ones with you at different points, but he had various resolutions. And these are things that he would rehearse in his own life once a week, just consistently asking himself, saying these things over and over again. And he, some of his resolutions dealt with time management. I want you to hear some of them. He said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That'll change the way you live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself, also at the end of every week, month, and year. Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, and year, wherein I could possibly, in any respect, have done better. Resolved I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world, i.e. when I get to heaven. What will I think would have been the wisest use of my time here? Resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as, I, think, as I, I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell torments. So realizing the full reality of heaven and hell, would that change the way I live right now? 
How would you live differently today if you knew Jesus was coming back tonight? And this text is saying, live that way today. Will you be found walking in obedience on that day? Or will you be found wandering in disobedience? If it were today, would you be found loving your neighbor or ignoring your neighbor? Would you be found passionately devoted to your spouse or practically negligent of your spouse? Would you be found hating sin or would you be found holding on to sin? What are you doing during your week that would not make sense if it were the last hour of your life? And feel the horror at the end of Jesus' words here. He will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The stakes are high in these questions. Are you faithfully following Christ? Third question. Are you trusting Christ? Are you trusting Christ? Chapter 25, verse 1. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, again, we don't need to get caught up in the miscellaneous details of the story. The point here is not to emphasize these women's sexuality. The point is that they were basically bridesmaids in a wedding. We don't know all the situations in detail behind this wedding wedding ritual, but clearly there was a party awaiting the coming of the groom. Brides not even mentioned in the story, only bridesmaids who were waiting for the groom to come in order to go with him into the wedding feast. And the only thing that separates one group of bridesmaids from the other is that five of them are prepared with oil in their lamps when he comes. And five of them are unprepared. And they're left out of the wedding feast altogether. The groom completely denies them entrance, saying, I do not even know you. Now, I struggled a a bit with, with what question to put here because, as you're seeing, many of these stories overlap. The point is essentially the same in all of them. Be prepared, be prepared. But as I studied this story, I couldn't help but to think, of, of what Jesus seems to be addressing and even Matthew seems to be addressing and in including these words. This story 
seems to speak very poignantly to people who are not not prepared to persevere until Jesus comes back. They have oil enough to burn light for a bit. They don't have enough oil to persevere through the night until the groom comes. You can't help but to think at this point about the parable Jesus told just 12 chapters before this about seed that fell on rocky ground. They didn't have much soil. Immediately sprang up. But since there was no depth of soil, when the sun came, they were scorched. They had no root. They lasted for a little bit, then they withered away. These bridesmaids clearly were not prepared for the long wait. They were not prepared to persevere until the groom comes back. And this is key. Ladies and gentlemen, the kingdom of heaven is not for those who simply respond to an invitation. All of these bridesmaids had done that. It's not simply for those who respond to an invitation. The kingdom of heaven, similarly, is not for those who simply make a confession. Each of these bridesmaids would have said that they were part of the bridal party. Their cry in verse 11 stands out, as they stand outside the wedding feast, is eerily similar to what we saw in Matthew chapter 7. Lord, Lord. And you've got this in your notes. The kingdom of heaven is not for those who simply express some affection. It's not for those who respond to an invitation, make a confession, or express some affection. This is a happy occasion that they were glad to be a part of, that they wanted to be a part of, but they were not prepared to persevere in in order to be a part of. So see this. The kingdom of heaven is only for those who endure in salvation. And that's part of the whole point here in Matthew 24 and 25. We didn't get to explore it as much as I would have liked to last week just for the sake of time. But go back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Remember when Jesus warned the disciples not to fall away? Look at it with me. He said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then listen to this. He says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. This is talking about people who looked like and claimed that they were followers of Jesus. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So follow this. Jesus says there will be people. There will be people who for a time look like they are followers of Jesus. People who for a time look like they are Christians. People who have responded to an invitation, made a confession, expressed some affection toward Christ who will not endure to the end. Do we not see this all over the place today? People who would say they are Christians because they prayed a prayer however many years ago or were baptized at some point or went to church or have done this or that, but their hearts are far from God today. People who would say that they are Christians, but they are not trusting in Christ today. That's the point of the question. Are you trusting Christ today? Not just a long time ago, at that point in the past, but now in your heart, in your life, even amidst difficulty and challenges and inevitable trials that will come toward your faith, are you trusting Christ 
today. One commentator said, by no means are all who read the Bible, attend and belong to a church, sing the songs of salvation, make a public profession of faith, or even preach in Christ's name, going to share in the blessings of Christ's return. He goes on describing those who have a form of piety but deny its power and unprepared they travel on to meet the judge. None of us may presume to be prepared. All of us must be watchful of our hearts. We must examine ourselves to see if we are trusting in him lest we unprepared travel on. So are you trusting in Christ today? Are you trusting in clinging to, holding on to Christ today? Are you believing Christ today? Not have you responded to an invitation to Christ years ago, made a confession of faith in Christ years ago, expressed some affection for Christ at some point in your life. Are you trusting Christ at this moment? This is how we are prepared for Jesus' coming. By persevering in faith, by trusting in Jesus today. And on, on a side note, just real quick, I, I've been invited to preach uh, again tomorrow at the pastor's conference for Southern Baptist Convention. So just thousands of pastors and their wives. And God has put a, a message on my heart that just addresses this issue. And it's not, not an easy message to preach. So I would just ask that you pray for me as I preach in New Orleans around 2.45 tomorrow afternoon, particularly on, on this issue. So, all right, next question. Two more here. Are you serving Christ with what he has given you? Are you serving Christ with what he has given you? Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, 
Even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this story is unique because it goes beyond just watching and waiting to working until Jesus comes back. The whole story about servants who've been entrusted with much. And just so you feel the force of this illustration here, realize that a talent was worth, some people think, up to about $300,000. This is not pennies we're dealing with here. He's given them much. And the overall parallel is clear. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our master and he's given much to us. We don't need to press the imagery of money too far in this thing. The point is, the master has given extravagantly to the servants. He has entrusted much to them. So there in your notes, Jesus is our master and we are his stewards. He has given us much and we are responsible for what we do with it. So two servants here take what's been entrusted to them and they work diligently with it. They're faithful to honor their master with the way they maximize his resources. Now, the key to understanding this whole story is not not to picture it like an employee-employer relationship that's just cold, hard, focused on the bottom line. Instead, you've got to see and feel the joy and the excitement, the heart between the first two servants and their relationship with their master. First servant comes, verse 20, he says, Master, I've made five talents more. One commentator imagined the scene. He said, the man's eyes are sparkling. He's bubbling over with enthusiasm. He is thoroughly thrilled. And as it were, he invites his master to start counting. And then his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. In other words, excellent, great, wonderful, enjoy. So see the joy and the intimacy between servant and master here. This is God's design. So that's why I put the question in your notes here. When Jesus comes back, will you be commended for your love? For your love. That's what everything comes back to here. This ties together all the things we're talking about. Are you keeping watch for Christ? That's something you do out of the overflow of love for Christ, right? When, when Heather goes out of town, I don't, I don't sit there at home and forget that she's coming back. I can't wait for her to come back. Especially if I got the kids alone. I cannot wait for her to come back. I talk to her, when are you coming back? Come back. So I love her and I need her. That's why we keep watch for Christ. Because our hearts... Long for Christ. Are you faithfully following Christ? Because you love Christ. That's John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Fullness of joy comes in loving obedience to Jesus. Are you trusting Christ? Why? Because you love Christ. You're persevering in faith because you love him. So are you serving Christ with all that he has given you because you love him? 
And so joy is a steward entrusted much with the master to honor him. So will you be commended for your love or will you be condemned in your laziness? So notice the last servant here was not condemned for something he did. He was condemned for that which he did not do. He did nothing with what the master had entrusted to him. And don't miss the reason behind it. Verse 24, he came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you don't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So see the opposite here. See the lack of joy, the lack of intimacy, the lack of love here. Blaming his master for his lack of responsibility. And so he's condemned. The servant's relationship with the master is severed. As a steward to fail to serve and honor the master with the mercy he has entrusted to you indicates a lack of love for, desire for the master. And this is the heart of discipleship to Jesus. D.A. Carson said it's not enough for Jesus' followers to hang in there and just wait for the end. They must see themselves as servants who improve what their master entrusts to them. Failure to do so proves that they cannot really be valued as disciples at all. So what are you doing with what God has entrusted to you? Not in the sense that you need to go out and earn your keep before Jesus gets back. That's not the point. The point is, do you love Christ in such a way that you serve Christ with all that he's given to you? Will you be commended for your love or will you be condemned in your laziness on that day final question are you serving Christians that God has put around you are you serving Christians that God has put around you verse 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous 
into eternal life. Now this last story is open to all kinds of confusion. Many people read this passage and they think, okay, whenever you do something good for anyone, that's the same as doing it for Jesus. But that kind of thinking actually misses the whole point of the passage. The key is when you get to verse 40, and Jesus says, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers you did to me. And the whole point is that Jesus is identifying himself with his followers, with those who have trusted in him. This is one of various examples in the New Testament where we see Jesus identify himself specifically with his people, with Christians. Remember when, remember when Paul was blinded by Jesus on Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus? Jesus said to him, Paul or Saul at that time, you're going around persecuting Christians? He said, and when you do this, you are persecuting me. Which is such wonderful imagery. Jesus basically says, you mess with them, you're messing with, with me. Jesus identifies himself with his people. It's the same picture. You love them, you serve them, my brothers, my followers, my father's children, then you're serving me. And that obviously doesn't mean we shouldn't help people who aren't Christians all over scripture. We're encouraged to love, serve non-Christians. That's just not the specific point of this passage. That's why I say, are you serving Christians that God has put around you? That's what this passage begs us to ask. Now follow this and avoid another misunderstanding in this text. You serve Christians that God has put around you, not because you want to get to heaven. That's what I love about this passage. These saints are welcomed into heaven and they are surprised at what Jesus says. When did we do all these things for you? Clearly, they're acts of service, giving away food, giving away clothes, welcoming strangers, visiting the sick, visiting the imprisoned. They were not doing these things in order to get to heaven. They were shocked to hear that this had anything to do with going to heaven. You serve Christians that God has put around you, not because you want to get to heaven, but because Jesus has changed your heart. It goes back to John 15, I mentioned earlier, where Jesus told his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. First John, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love and we love because he first loved us. So if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in words or in deeds, but words or talk, but in action and in truth. So this is huge. This is huge, particularly for us and a people who have so much of the world's goods. And we're surrounded in this world by brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Let us not close our hearts toward them. Let us give extravagantly to them and in the process show extravagant love to him. We make sacrifices in our ministries here, comforts here, things we've grown to expect in our church culture here. We make sacrifices. Why? Because we have brothers and sisters who are starving and we want them to live over there. That's the inevitable fruit of a heart that's been changed by Christ. And it's a fundamental way that we prepare for the coming of Christ by serving Christians that God has put around us. 
knowing the whole time that sacrificial service is not a means of earning salvation, is never a means of earning salvation. We do not serve other people, specifically our brothers and sisters in Christ, in order to gain brownie points before God so that we can get to heaven. Sacrificial service is not a means of earning salvation. Instead, sacrificial service is necessary evidence of salvation. A heart that is truly trusted in Christ, a life that is truly longing for Christ, will be consumed with serving brothers and sisters around them. Now the imagery in this last story, it reflects imagery we've seen all over the other stories, leads us then to two eternal destinations that await us all. And this is the most important moment. What is obvious from every one of these stories is that when we die, when Jesus comes back, which could be at either moment, either one of those, you're not guaranteed a breath five minutes from now. Not one person in this room, including myself, is. And there's no no reason why Jesus would not potentially come back five minutes from now or sooner. And at that moment, either one, all of us will be divided into two destinations. And again, each of us will stand alone in this. Every person in this room will either go to heaven, a place where people will experience unhindered enjoyment of the Father's love. So hear the language in Matthew 25, 34. The king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What language? You who are blessed by my father before time began. Enter into a kingdom filled with delight. This is your inheritance, child of God. Plan for you before the world was formed. Enter into limitless joy and everlasting satisfaction. That's the imagery we've seen all over these stories. A blessed servant at the end of chapter 24. A wedding feast. Servants entering into the joy of their master. Now it's the righteous entering into eternal life. Why would we not long for this day? Why would we not look for this day? Keep watch for Christ until that day. Faithfully follow Christ until that day. Trust Christ. Serve Christ. Serve Christians around you. It won't be long until we're together in the Father's kingdom enjoying the reward of the Son. So every person in this room will either go to heaven or to hell which is the polar opposite of the picture we just saw. Depart from me, Matthew 25, 41 says. This is not unhindered enjoyment of the Father's love. This is total separation from the Father's love. Total separation from the Father's love in a place prepared for demons. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is not a place where the devil torments sinners. Hell is a place where the devil is tormented alongside sinners. One writer said, what a destiny to spend eternity shoulder to shoulder with an evil being whose one goal has been to defy God and bring others to share in suffering forever. 
a place of unquenchable agony. So you've seen, you've heard the imagery in these stories to this point, cut in pieces, put in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, now eternal fire. People say, well, how can hell be eternal fire and darkness at the same time? Oh, you missed the point. These are words, these are images that depict the agony and misery that will mark all who are destined to this place. In one writer's words, the purpose of imagery is to point beyond what literal language can convey. If a literal burning by fire is bad, the reality of hell's suffering must be immeasurably and inexpressibly worse. And worse of all, hell is a place of never-ending suffering. The same word, eternal, that's used to describe life with God in heaven is now used to describe punishment from God in hell. So this is overwhelming, isn't it? So don't, don't just start putting up your notes like we're just, okay, ready to move on to something else. Like, think about this. And we're here for 70, 80, maybe 90 years. After which, an eternity lasts for billions and billions and billions of years, and at that point is only beginning. And every person in this room will either spend that forever in everlasting joy or everlasting suffering is this true we're just playing a game here is this real can we trust what Jesus is saying here and here's, here's why we can trust what Jesus is saying here. Because less than a week after he said these words, Jesus died on a cross and then rose from the grave three days later. We've talked about this before. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, then we don't have to listen to a thing he said. We are fools to listen to what he said. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then we must listen to everything he said. So yes, this goes against the grain of certainly political correctness, certainly religious pluralism that is rampant in our day. But this is the reality that Christ teaches in Scripture. Every single person in this room will go to either heaven or hell. Every single person on the planet, one of those two destinations. And so I say then to every person in this room, are you ready for that day? That day, which could be today, when you either breathe your last breath or you see this Savior's face, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to stand before God to give an account? And if that does not bring joy to your heart, it says, yes, I'm ready. And I want to urge you today to trust in Christ, to cling to Christ, to come to Christ. 
for some of you for the first time to come to Christ, leave behind monotonous religious games. This is real. Repent of your sin. Turn aside from yourself and your sin and trust in Jesus. He has died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. He has risen from the grave in victory over death. And everyone who repents and believes in him will be reconciled to God forever and ever and ever. So trust in Christ today. Come to Christ today. Cling to Christ today. Not anything you can do. Cling to what Christ has done for you. And be saved today. In the words of John Owen, I put it in the bottom of your notes. This is somewhat of the word which Jesus now speaks unto you. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure? Or can your hands be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as though you will rather perish than accept a deliverance by me. Eternity lies at the door. Come to Christ, and then when you do, keep watch for his coming. Faithfully follow him, serve him, and trust him, and love his people until the end. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you are wondering how you can honor Jesus with your ballot this election season, David Platt has a new resource just for you. Our current political climate obviously presents some unique challenges for Christians, especially in an election season. And the research shows that Christians already divide into churches based on political opinions. And that division is even greater as everyone from prominent Christian leaders to ordinary church members begins voicing their support for opposing candidates, parties, and positions. In David Platt's new book, Before You Vote, he urges every Christian to ask seven critical questions before casting a ballot. Listeners of Radical with David Platt can get their copy of Before You Vote now at beforeyouvotebook.com forward slash podcast. That's beforeyouvotebook.com forward slash podcast. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at radical.net.